0: Bill Cleveland, the host of Change the Story, Change the World. This week, we're going to share something a bit different. In June of 2021, I participated in an international conference convened by the Art and Society Research Network. My part was a presentation about using story-based strategies for community arts training. Because of the pandemic, the conference was entirely online with most of the presentations delivered asynchronously or what I call in unreal time, which I have to admit is not my favorite mode of teaching. My response was to use a few stories about using stories to help prepare artists and their partners from other community sectors for work in communities and social institutions. What we came up with was a game show, a scene from a novella about artists working in prison, and a visit to a fake town in the midst of a harsh reckoning around issues of race, justice, othering, and belonging. Welcome to a special edition of Change the Story, Change the World, as we pay a visit to the 16th Annual Art in Society Conference. Hi, I'm Bill Cleveland. I'm speaking to you from Alameda, California, near Oakland, which is the traditional land of the Ohlone people and home to our country's newest vice president, Kamala Harris. I run the Center for the Study of Art and Community. Our name is a mouthful, to be sure, but we have a pretty simple mission, which is basically helping to create new community arts partnerships in service to building caring, capable, and equitable communities and then telling the stories that rise up. Over the past couple of decades, the Center has done just that by conducting research, providing cross-sector community arts training, and producing studies, articles, books, and a podcast called Change the Story, Change the World on arts-based community development and social change efforts all over the world. Enough about us. I'd like to begin this presentation by inviting you to participate in one of our fabulous quiz shows. This show is actually a little game called Truth or No. The object of the game is to spark your imaginations and have a little bit of fun. To do this, you'll need to write a few things down. Yeah, I know you thought this conference would be just sitting and watching, but please indulge me here. I'll give you a bit of time to grab a pencil. Maybe you could just pause the video that you're watching. Okay, now let's start. The game goes like this. In a little bit, I'm going to share four really short stories that may or may not be true. Your job is to identify the ones that are false. Before I start, you'll need to write one through four on that piece of paper. Now, after each little story I tell, please write T for those you think are true and N for those that are fabrications. This will happen very fast, so here we go. True, true, no? No. No. No, 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 no. Way back in the 20th century, the U.S. space program felt they needed more public support. So, they decided to engage artists to help them draw more positive attention to their efforts. This NASA arts program started with a bang, hiring O Superman Laurie Anderson and pop artist Robert Raschenberg as resident artists to make art celebrating the exploration of the cosmos. Once upon a time, a group of neighbors found themselves with a crack house problem. They responded by engaging law enforcement, zoning officials, and the city council, all to no avail. In their desperation, they turned to a group of artists from the community. These artists went crazy, whipping out a mural that was so powerful that within 20 hours of its completion, the dope peddlers had totally fled the scene, never to return. True, true, you're true number number three. Three. If you're incarcerated in a supermax prison, you spend 90% of your life locked in an 8x10 cell and will breathe fresh air only 60 minutes a week. A woman artist who felt this was a terrible thing decided to use her art to shut down her state's supermax. After she created her work, the governor of the state decided it was time to shut down the state's 700-bed supermax prison, and now it's gone. There once was an artist who planted trees, slept with wolves, and decided to change the world. To do this, he and some fellow artists created an artwork that resulted in the election of thousands of progressive candidates to local and national elective offices in dozens of countries around the world. Okay, four pretty crazy, improbable stories. So how did you vote? If you get them all right, you will have won an all-expenses-paid trip to a place called St. Francis, Maryland, which I'll tell you all about in a moment. Here's the lowdown on the four stories. NASA Yes, Lori and Robert were employed by a NASA arts program that goes back to the 1960s. The crack house. This is true, too. In Atlanta, a mural artist named Normando Ismay and a mural crew turned a crack house into a massive multi-color, four-sided billboard advertising the best drugs at deep discounts. For some reason, the customers stopped showing up. Number three. What can I say? This one seems like a stretch, but it's true too. In 2008, Lori Jo Reynolds, a videographer who calls herself a legislative artist, launched HAM's 10-Year, an arts project to expose the inhumane conditions at an Illinois supermax prison specifically designed for sensory deprivation and solitary confinement. In 2013, Illinois Governor Pat Quinn announced its closure. Number four, art and elections. There's no way for this one, but what can I say? The Green Party was established as something called a social sculpture by a group of artists led by Joseph Boyes. This game was a quick and silly way to introduce some history that has helped define what has variously been called community arts, or arts-based community development, or more recently, creative placemaking and social practice. In it, we used a fictional game show to tell some hard-to-believe, but true stories. Along the way, some of you may have encountered some degree of skepticism about the power of the human imagination to provoke change. When we train artists and their community partners for community creative collaborations, we use games like these with multiple rounds to have fun and help them get out of their heads and into a place where they can exercise their imaginations individually and, most importantly, together. This workshop is about how stories can help us access some of the most difficult lessons about art making in service to community learning, building, healing, and mobilizing. In Truth or No, the story was a game I made up and you hopefully played along. Playing is the key here because play is basically life practice. This is true for all the creatures in the animal kingdom, including us. When we're young, A lot of our play is physical testing and problem solving. As we get older, it migrates more and more into the realm of thinking and what we sometimes call adult learning. As community arts trainers, we're trying to provide a memorable learning experience that can help our students respectfully engage the often complex and ambiguous institutional and community systems and cultures. Another of our most effective, training resources are stories about fictional neighborhoods or organizations or agencies that we use to tell the real story of what it's like to navigate them as creative change agents. In these narratives, artists and community members, administrators and staff explore the conundrums and contradictions, the heartaches and little victories that creative partners dance with every day in these other places. The example of this I'm going to share was created during a time I ran California's Arts and Corrections program. It's called The Novella, which is a work of fiction by writer, teacher, artist, activist Judith Tannenbaum that was used to train artists getting ready to teach in one of California's 32 correctional facilities. At the time, Arts and Corrections was the largest arts residency program in the world, with over 1,000 artists and 25,000 students. As I'm sure you've noticed, it has also provided the title of this workshop.
1: North Coast Correctional Facility, Unit 2, Third Tier. NCCF is on indefinite lockdown following an inmate stabbing. Because of this, writing instructor Susan Robertson is working with her students through the bars of their cells. She approaches Mitch Reiser's cell.
0: Hello, Susan, Come in this way?
1: Mitch Reiser's voice broke into Susan's thoughts on violence and its effect on the mind and soul. She walked past a few cells to where Mitch was housed. Are you psychic or what? How did you know it was me? Susan asked. Always on her guard with Mitch. She was never able to be herself with Mitch around. And Mitch was always around. There were so many silent ways in which Mitch made sure he was there. Always there.
0: I am psychic where you're concerned, but this time... I've got to give credit where credit is due.
1: Mitch pointed to the small mirror that he could adjust to give him a reflection of just what was coming along the walkway. Susan stepped back and looked at the other cells and saw that many such mirrors were now focused on her. She shook her head. I'm a trained observer, but I'm not seeing anything well today.
0: You may not be seeing well, but you sure are looking good.
1: Susan smiled. Cute. Corny, but cute. This parrying with Mitch was easy, but dangerous. If she wasn't careful, he'd pick up whatever she said and run with it as far as he could. Susan, just come a little closer, will you? I can hear you fine. But I just want to smell your perfume. I don't wear perfume, she said, then thought, shit, he's trapped me. I've got to get out of this dialogue without one more personal exchange.
0: Then why do you always smell so sweet?
1: Mitch, what poems are you going to read at the banquet? Uh,
0: I don't want to talk about poems.
1: That's what I'm here for.
0: Does your husband send you flowers? Mitch, I'm going to send you flowers. You'll see. Sometime you'll be home alone. Night will be coming on. Maybe you'll be taking a bath or rubbing
1: oil all over your naked skin, and they'll be there, these
0: surprise flowers, and you'll know (laughs) they're from me.
1: Okay, Mitch, that's it. Never had the promise of flowers sounded so like a threat. I'm just gonna love you forever, Susan. Mitch whispered towards Susan's departing back, although she tried not to hear. She heard,
0: I've got All the time in the world, Susan, and I'm gonna take as long as I need to convince you. And I'll convince you that you'll
1: stay. A bird had flown in through the open transom and was singing in the block. Susan focused on this bird. Its song made her hear the weighted silence of the gray sky outside, the ocean water. She listened to these silent sounds that rolled under her quickly beating heart Under all the noise in the block, she wanted to leave Unit 2, run back to the office and talk to Al about Mitch, but she decided to see the rest of her students first, and she walked down the tier as steady as she could.
0: This scene is a dramatic turning point, and one of the many subplots that are woven into the 100-page narrative that unfolds in the novella. Beyond the episode with Mitch, the North Coast story unfolds with other unsettling twists and turns, all of which are based on the true events chronicled in Judith Tannenbaum's exhaustive one-year research process. In addition to the fatal stabbing and subsequent lockdown, there is a discovered tryst between a teacher and a prisoner, a crippling state budget freeze, and most devastatingly for the arts programs, teachers, students, and their families the cancellation of the first-ever Arts Program Awards Banquet, which had been a year in the making. Despite the intensity of this string of events, Judith Tannenbaum's narrative is not overly dramatic, and pointedly so. This is because one of the most incongruent characteristics of prison life is the plodding drumbeat of hard-to-imagine juxtapositions. Boredom and fear, cacophony and silence, bad news and no news. If the joint could talk, it would surely be shouting, You think you caught us at a bad time? (laughs) Nah, this is normal. You think this is crazy? Wait till next week. As daunting as this might seem, Judith Tannenbaum understood that her principal job here was as a translator, making some sense of a place where the Queen of Hearts and the Mad Hatter would feel quite comfortably at home, a place where seemingly simple questions about the right thing to do are answered with alternating layers of clarity and quicksand. A place where the signs and signals we all depend on to find our way are offered up in a yes but actually no oscillating current that is both confounding and oddly thrilling. Our task here with the novella was to create a story that attracted and supported new creative colleagues but also discouraged potential slackers. Who else but an artist could render this world in a way that conveyed the elusive truth of this foggy netherworld without scaring away the potential pathfinders. Like I said, the stories of the novella are all based on the real life experiences of the dozens of staff and incarcerated artists Judith interviewed during her research. These, of course, included her own experiences as a writing teacher working on the prison planet. The prison planet is a place where truth Beauty, trust, tenderness, vulnerability, color, sensitivity, choice, all the intangible qualities humans need to thrive are virtually non-existent. But through her teaching, she made these things available to her students. In the process, they became creators with a chance to own a bit more of their unique story an act of personal agency that is a precious thing on the inside. Doing this takes courage for both the teacher and the taught. Writing the novella, though, called for another kind of bravery. This is because the scene you just heard was a fictionalized version of a real struggle Judith had with one of her students. Like Mitch, this poet, a lifer, with two rape-murder convictions, was a persistent edge-pusher whose obsession with Judith became more and more tenacious over time. The line was crossed when a staff member overheard him describing in detail his plans for Judith to fellow prisoners. This was a terrifying situation for Judith, and because of the program, Other Women at Q, the rules, and a dozen other reasons, both paranoid and real, the incident could not be written off. Prior to the novella, we relied primarily on the institutions to orient our new artists. This often turned out to be what we used to call a dog and pony show, a two- or three-hour PowerPoint workshop with a sergeant up there saying, part your hair wrong and you're in trouble. Here's the director's rules, read them, remember them, follow them, and you'll be just fine. But for us, that didn't cut it. Our artists did need to know the rules for sure, but given the intimate nature of creative teaching, they needed to understand the culture as well. Something that could shed a little light on the shifting shadows that define life inside. Something like a novella. So now you might ask, how did this turn out? Well, we created a training that used the novella as its foundation, and here's what the department's research showed. Well, we found our artists were much less inclined to stereotype correction staff and incarcerated people. And when problems arose, artists tend to ask many more questions rather than make snap judgments. We also saw improved trust for artists among staff and incarcerated students, and there was a better communication between correction staff and artists. We saw better cooperation from line staff and institutional administrators, and we got much greater respect from students who really appreciated the increasingly savvy artists they encountered. We saw an increase in participation in the program, and there were a lot fewer program-threatening incidents involving artists. Most importantly, though, the characters and stories represented in the novella became a safe space for exploring the complicated, often contradictory issues and forces that define life and work in prison. At the end of the day, it was much easier to ask a critical question about the fictional Susan Robertson's or assistant warden's motivations or decision-making than it was to directly challenge a colleague or staff member. Our third example of how an invented storyline can help build skills and understanding takes the North Coast institutional strategy to another level. It was developed with the University of Massachusetts Arts Extension Service, which provides online professional certificate and degree programs for arts leaders in the U.S. and overseas. In this case, rather than provide a story about a fictional place, we asked the students in our Creative Community Leadership course to spin their own saga, playing, that's that word again, playing arts leaders in response to an escalating series of events that precipitates a mini-cultural war in the fake town of St. Francis, Maryland. Along the way, they learned a lot about the power of the imagination for good and ill, and each other. When theater artist Catherine Bentley and I began designing this course, we were faced with a daunting question. How do you train for relationship-intensive work like community arts using a distance learning platform? We likened this conundrum to trying to teach basketball online, which, of course, is... Impossible. It might work for a course on the history of basketball, its rules, and maybe some coaching theories, but the game itself just can't be learned without players practicing hoops together on the course. The same can be said of community arts practice, which, like basketball, involves groups of people with different skills and perspectives trying to work well together. Applying arts-based strategies to critical community issues like health, affordable housing, public safety, education, and equitable development requires trust-based partnerships. Learning to collaborate effectively across community sectors takes a lot of practice with real partners working as close as you can get to real communities. So once again, how do you help students prepare for these real-world challenges using an online learning platform? Our response was to create a mid sized town of about 85,000 situated on the eastern seaboard of the U.S. for our students to play in. At first blush, St. Francis seems like a fairly prosperous middle of the road community with few obvious complaints, but of course, there was more going on beneath the surface, way more. These were our course objectives. First, We wanted to challenge each student to examine their motivations and capacities for this kind of work. Then we wanted them to become conversant with the history, language, theories, and strategies that define the best arts community development efforts. Along with this, we wanted them to be aware of best practices from both the community and cultural development sectors. And finally, to learn and practice effective community collaborations and network building across community sectors. Practice is key here. How could we get 18 students in communities across the world to learn and play the relationship-intensive game of arts-based community development under game conditions? The foundation for this was five groups of three students each. Each group was given a profile for an organization that they are responsible for running, as well as the social, economic, and political, and cultural history that comprises the St. Francis backstory. Once they became familiar with St. Francis and their organization's place in it, we started the process of tilting their world. The first week's online real-time group exercise begins with a series of little stories called breaking news. We start pretty simply, but in no time at all, these breaking news stories go from zero to a hundred miles per hour in a hurry. Here's the first one sent to one of the five organizations, a youth mural arts organization called Art Changes Everything Incorporated, who are working with a team of young artists to create a mobile mural as part of the city's comprehensive planning initiative called St. Francis Thriving 2030. Breaking news number one. Your mural project has been operating smoothly were the previous three months, May, June, and July. As the summer is winding down, everybody involved, including the mayor who is up for re-election, are very happy with how the work has proceeded. This morning, when your artist opened the storage cabinet containing the mural program's art materials, they noticed that a case of spray paint was missing. There was also a note left in the cabinet that said, Youth Power Rules. What, if anything, do you do now? Here is Breaking News 2. Your executive director has just come from a hastily called meeting with the director of all of the other project partners. At that meeting, the local police reported that the Veterans Memorial Band Show in the park had been covered in spray paint graffiti the night before. One tag read, youth rules. What do you do? What do you want your partners to do? Shortly thereafter, the third bomblet drops and all hell breaks loose with breaking news number three. One day has passed since the meeting of the partners. This morning's newspaper contained a front page article on the graffiti that strongly implies a link between the mural project and the vandalism. The story has also proliferated on social media. Some fringe sites have even begun referring to the project as a refuge for lawless immigrants and young criminals. This morning, artists met with the students on the mural team and are convinced that they are not involved in the incident. Unfortunately, an hour ago, the mayor, who is also a veteran, showed up at the club. He was very agitated and demanded the cancellation of the mural project and the expulsion of the mural team from the club. What do you do? What do you want your partners to do? Over the course of the program, our five teams met on a weekly basis to respond to an evolving storyline of ups, downs, and in-betweens that escalates in intensity in the run-up to the November election. As the toxicity of the political season intensifies, a tidal wave of racially-tinged accusations and recriminations, finger-pointing, and scapegoating grow. The argument that emerges is a back-and-forth tumult between youth art advocates and pro-veteran factions complaining about the instability of single parents, the dangers of rap music, and the influx of immigrant families. In the final days of the election, the mayor's unhinged reaction to the conflict becomes the defining issue of the contest. The results are extremely close. But in the end, the mayor's seeming slam-dunk re-election fails to materialize. In the week following the election, mayor-elect James Ifill, the first African-American elected to public office in St. Francis, announces that one of his first priorities will be to address the festering wound of bad feelings and animosity engendered by the conflict that boosted his election. In early January, one of his first acts as mayor is to enlist a local foundation to support a reconciliation initiative to both engage the community in healing and establish a peace-building organization called St. Francis One. During the final three weeks of the course, each of the five teams are invited by the mayor to submit proposals for the creation of an arts-based, youth-focused component for the St. Francis One initiative. I'm happy to say that the response of our students to the scenario, the online encounters, and the St. Francis story's surprising twists and turns was extraordinary particularly since it all went down in the midst of the pandemic. We received a lot of good feedback as well as suggestions for new wrinkles for future iterations. For us, the most striking reaction was that many of them said they found themselves thinking of St. Francis as a real place that they were accountable to. Our goal was to give our students an understanding of the field of arts-based community development and a taste to the kinds of partnerships that determine their success or failure. By the end of the course, they had forged working partnerships with their fellow students that, while not the same as an on-the-ground collaboration, contained many of the challenges and satisfactions that creative change agents face in their community-based work. In this workshop, I've shared three examples of how story-based learning strategies can help prepare artists and their community partners for the rigors of community-based work. A quiz show, a fictional prison, and a made-up town. There are many more examples that we could share. If you're interested, please let me know. Another of our curricular resources that is available to all of you is our podcast, Change the Story, Change the World, which chronicles the work of artists from around the world helping to build caring, capable, and equitable communities. I hope this workshop was useful. If you do have any follow-up questions, please share them in the discussion section of the conference site. I'll try to respond to them during the course of the conference. Thanks for tuning in. Stay well and enjoy the rest of the conference. Well, that was what we presented at the Art and Society Conference. We got some good feedback from places as far afield as Australia and India. We hope you enjoyed it. A tip of the hat to Judy Munson for her fantastic soundscape and Kathy Bentley for her star turn on our prison piece. And a special thanks to the University of Massachusetts Arts Extension Service for the encouragement and support they've given Kathy and I for our Creative Community Leadership course this past year. If you are an aspiring arts leader, AES is definitely the place to go for professional development. Check them out online and on our show notes. Change the Story, Change the World is a production of the Center for the Study of Art and Community. Please tune in next week for our next regular episode. Adios and stay well.